0: Hello, and welcome to CEO Cafe. I'm your host, Spencer Walsh, and in this interview series, we sit down with the CEOs of industry-leading technology companies to break down their business models, discuss trends in their industries, and examine current investor expectations. My hope is that you enjoy these conversations and learn some valuable insights from the executives shaping the world around us. Today, I'm excited to have Daryl Heaps on the show for our inaugural interview. Daryl is the CEO of Q4 Inc, A business that he founded in 2006 and has since built into one of the leading capital market software providers in North America. Q4 went public on the Toronto Stock Exchange in 2021 and today has over 500 employees. And now, on to the interview.
1: interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The host, Spencer Walsh, also serves as the managing member of Kinesis Capital LLC, an investment advisor based in San Francisco, California. All opinions expressed by Spencer Walsh and the guests in this interview are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Kinesis Capital LLC or the companies at which guests are employed or affiliated. This interview may also contain statements that are considered forward-looking under various securities laws. These forward-looking statements are based upon current market conditions and assumptions and involve risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially materially. Music Capital LLC and its clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this interview, and nothing herein should be construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. This interview does not intend to be complete or entirely accurate on any topic addressed, and the information discussed in this interview is provided as of the date of its publication and will not be updated.
0: Well, Daryl, welcome to the show today. I know you've got a busy schedule and a business to run, so I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat.
2: My pleasure, Spencer. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so, in addition to disclosures uh, you heard at the beginning of this interview series, I want to make a couple more. Uh, first one, and primarily, is that Kinesa Capital LLC and the private fund that it manages are currently shareholders of Q4 Inc., and we plan to continue to be as market conditions warrant. And so, with that, let's dive right into the interview. Daryl, as I've gotten to know you in Q4 over the past year, it dawned on me you'd be a first great guest for this interview series for a variety of reasons. You know, one is that I think many investors have likely interacted with Q4 software yet might be unfamiliar with your business. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting dynamic. Second is I think you're a pretty timely example of a business that's responding to the current macro environment where companies are shifting from this mindset of growth at all costs to profitable growth. And I think you guys are kind of in the middle of that pivot and I'm excited to dive into that today. And uh, lastly, you know your stock's down significantly from your IPO. You guys went public at over six times sales. Today trade based on consensus 2022 numbers, they call it one and a half times sales. Uh, obviously, as a shareholder in Q4, I believe your shares trade in attractive valuation, and I believe you do as well, uh, given your large holding in Q4 and some of your recent open market share purchases. So um, that's kind of why I thought you'd make a great first guest here for the CEO Cafe interview series.
2: That's wonderful. Well, congratulations on uh, on setting up the series, and uh, I look forward to uh, to your other guests as well. But happy to be the uh, happy to be the first.
0: Yeah, 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 awesome. Um, well, look, let's uh, let's dive right in then. So to kick things off, why don't you give a brief kind of overview of Q4, a little bit of the origin story, some details about kind of the software Q4 provides today, who your target customer is, rough customer count, who you sell to, kind of the rough price points of your offerings, just kind of rough overview.
2: Sure. Um, so maybe I'll start with describing the business as it exists today, and then I can talk a little bit about the, um, uh, how we got here and the evolution of the business. So what Q4 is, is that we are a, a capital markets communications platform that is used primarily today from, uh, by corporates and by the investor relations function inside of public companies. And what it's used for is to manage really all of the communication or the bulk of the communication out into the public markets, primarily through the company's investor website, as well as any of the virtual events that they do. So that would be things such as like earnings calls, investor days, et cetera. Part of it, with your opening comments as well of how many investors have likely kind of touched or used Q4 software is because of the reach that we have in the market. Um, and so and whether if an individual has come to an investor website, um, clicked on or a corporate website and clicked on investors and goes to kind of investor.company.com, um, we're delivering everything associated to that experience. So all the content, all the functionality, all the data, et cetera. And similarly, if you've joined an earnings call, um, you've likely listened to one of our streams. Um, And that's because of today, we have just under 2,700 uh, corporates that run on the platform. Our business is largely companies that are kind of small cap and up. So think about kind of like billion market, billion dollar market cap and up. So if you um, research or engage or invest in, uh, in equities in the US market, there's a high probability that you are already using Q4 in some respects as you research and look at the companies that you're interested in. Um, then we also provide to corporates the kind of the back end is we provide a whole set of analytics that helps companies understand who their investors are what they're doing, what their behavior is, what they're researching, what they're looking at and interacting with, and also what it is that they're buying in market and what they're doing with their peers. And all of this is designed to help companies understand who their shareholders are today, but also who they should be in the future. And we do a bunch of work in terms of targeting, to so helping our companies understand based on the engagement of investors, based on their behaviors in the market, and based on their buying and selling of, of their peers, who are the best investors to target? And that kind of core value proposition is really important uh, in the value that we deliver from an analytics perspective. And then we wrap all of that in a CRM that helps um, IR teams really manage all of the interactions that they're having with the market, managing their pipeline of investors, managing all their reporting, and managing kind of everything that they need to do on a day-to-day basis to run a really effective and impactful IR program. And so we do that today, um, largely in the U.S., so kind of that that just under uh, 2,700 companies that we have, the majority of those are U.S. listed, but we do have a a smaller business in Europe that's also growing really well and and a part of our future and something that is really important. The way to kind of understand the business is the top paying clients on the platform that use kind of a a broad array of all the products are paying kind of 120,000 or so a year. Any of the numbers I share are all U.S. dollars. Um, about one hundred twenty thousand on the high end. On the low end, if they're just using one product, they're they're spending probably fifteen thousand or so with us. But to give you a sense, we're just under. Um, uh, well, we're just under kind of fifty five million ARR business today, um, and the uh, the average uh, revenue per account that companies have when they run on the platform is around twenty thousand or so. But sixty five percent of our ARR of that fifty five number comes from companies that are using two or more products. So we've really been able to, um, over time, when I started the business back in um, in 2006, um, we started with just one product, which was really a web content management system for public companies to manage their website. So it was a very thin product that did kind of like one very basic thing. And over time, what we've done is, uh, is really work at specializing that product, being very focused on investor relations, and then really the entire stack that an IR department has, making sure that we can deliver kind of functionality at each component of that. And as we've done that, we've really seen that the majority of the revenue that we generate today comes from companies that have already adopted two or more products. But as we go forward, the real opportunity for us to drive uh, growth in this business is, is kind of twofold. On the corporate side, it is really about um, driving uh, logo adoption, a logo acquisition, I should say. So this is moving that 20 just under 2,700 uh, to 5,000 over the next kind of three to five years, and we do that through on the ground, you know, deal by deal acquiring new clients, but also through acquisitions. So we've consolidated and acquired about a thousand clients from various different competitors over the last couple of years. And we see other opportunities to do that going forward. So that kind of gets us to like that 5,000 total client count objective, but then it's also about driving that ARPA. So when we look at that ARPA, that 20,000, whereas our product stack's worth about 120, it's driving all of our our customers to, to use more and more of the platform. And so when we look at that, our objective is to get that ARPA to about 50,000. So when we look at that, that's about a $250 million business that we have confidence that we can build over the lat the next kind of like three to five years, again, both organically and uh, and inorganically. But the the larger vision about what it is that we're doing, and this has always been the vision, is that we see a tremendous opportunity around the three sides of the market. We have corporates, the sell side and the buy side. and We've always, when I founded the company, um, it was based on the principle of that, if we could create a software business that sat in between companies and investors in in the capital markets, in the stock market, um, that would be a business that would have consistent demand, no matter what the market condition, no matter if it's strong or weak, um, bull or bear, companies and investors always lean into one another. And so also believed one, that that was a good place to build a business, and the second is that we believe that the web was going to, this is in 2006 and I created it, the web would redefine how the world communicates. Um, and that's certainly the world that we live in today, where like all communication happens through the internet and through the web. So those two kind of founding principles have uh, allowed us to kind of build the business and sit in this intersection between companies and investors. But as we evolved, we understood more and more about the sell side, about banks and that relationship on kind of the three sides of the market. And so what we've been doing is really following our customers into the market in terms of what are the most critical workflows for companies and investors. And where that's taken us, um, and we started this last year, is corporate access. So we know that companies um, or investors value corporate access the most when they're building out their thesis, being able to meet with management is absolutely critical. And so we started to take our virtual events platform and um, expand that to serve use cases in corporate access. So for investor conferences, kind of jumbo non-deal roadshows, reverse bus tours, et cetera, and sell that into the banks. So we started to do that last year and that's something that we are gonna continue doing. And that's the beginning of where we see the really the larger business here, which is around looking at corporate access, looking at uh, research distribution, looking at deal management as all the kind of like fundamental Uh, workflow aspects of the market that are largely kind of siloed applications, all kind of like old school Rolodex kind of context. um, Very kind of like, uh, has not been revolutionized um, to be able to be kind of brought into the modern world of a unified platform and unified data. And we think that that's the big opportunity here. And the interesting thing is when you think about our business is that We have built an incredible um, supply side to the capital markets because we having thousands of clients. One of the things we talked about, we've got 50% of the S&P 500. So again, if you you invest in any kind of known big uh, large cap stock, I mean, you're already connecting with us, but that supply side gives us an incredible advantage as we connect things like corporate access and research distribution to all of the corporates on our platform. And so what we found is that as we expand our platform and we unify our data, we create very unique connections that give us unique and differentiated insights that help us uh, both build the adoption within our existing customers, help us attract new customers, and uh, and ultimately over time, as we continue to, to scale up the business, the data asset and the insights that we're able to understand in terms of how the market is functioning, is truly where the very unique value sits that we've just begun to tap. That that personally, I think over time will become the most valuable part of the business um, over the next kind of three to five years. Okay. I'm yeah, sure I, I answered all your questions, but but uh, hopefully that's a good <laughs> no, no, that, like, review. That,
0: that was great. It kind of lays out the business and the big vision. I mean, I've always enjoyed you guys shared this data point that you know roughly four million daily users access you know Q4 client websites and events um on on a daily basis and you guys are able to collect a lot of information on kind of who they are and the thought that you know 10 years ago it was kind of this black box in terms of who's interested in your company from an investment standpoint that's that's clearly changing a little bit you can now actually feed the companies i know you guys launched that engagement analytics platform you guys can actually feed the companies like hey uh you know, large mutual fund X <laughs> has visits your website, you know, probably 30 times. They will send to your earnings calls, you know, the last past three earnings calls. You know, they aren't shareholders yet. They're a shareholder of a company with some similar characteristics to you. Maybe it's a small cap, a growth tilt to it, whatever it may be. Maybe this is someone you should reach out to.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing is doing that on a kind of per company basis is kind of the first level of the value. And it is super interesting to say, Here's, here's a, um, an investor, so we, we we have kind of profiles on about 350,000 investors uh, globally, huge concentration of that in the US, but increasing globally. Um, but we also track around uh, just under 2000 institutions in terms of their behavior across our network. And the, the interesting thing is, is on a company by company basis, you can say, well, here's an investor that just hit your website, here's what they're doing on your website, but also they've joined your earnings call, they were engaged in the call, et cetera. And that that provides kind of like level one of, of the value and the insight because you can get kind of an early warning sign of here's someone who's doing research on you. Maybe you can reach out to them, et cetera. The real power of it is when you zoom out and understand the, the value of, of looking at that from kind of a network level or a platform level. And that allows us to answer questions like, show me investors that are kind of interested in my peers, researching my peers, but not me. So when you think about that investment process, like if someone's looking, you're looking at one company, being able to get early into that research process, that investment process is a huge advantage for a company. The kind of, and the the other side of that is like the typical kind of one-on-one targeting exercise that public companies go through is they ask this question that says, show me all the, the um, show me the investors that are invested in my peers, but not me. Yeah. And you can do that from a 13S, 13F screen, I mean like, you, you and I Spencer could run that screen right now and you like, there's your list. You go, okay, so here's guys that are in all of your peers, but not in you. The problem with using that as a targeting exercise is it's such a lagging indicator. You have the, research, the, you know, the initiate, the idea of investment, the research process, the thesis, initiating the position. Then you have the filing period, which is 45 days after the yeah. quarter, then the 13 Fs come out. So from the point of like researching new ideas, to actually being able to run that screen and get that targeting list, it's about six months. What we're able to do is to be here on the spectrum, not here, Yeah. that companies get in front of investors much, much earlier as they're considering entering into a new market or initiating a new position. And that gives them a tremendous advantage in terms of competing for capital um, than those that are kind of waiting for the six months. So we see that, that that kind of approach of using data that is the great thing for us as a business is that um, you can't just wake up tomorrow and say, yeah, let's build that business too. So like our competitors or other people to be able to get to the point where we are today takes a huge amount of investment and time to be able to build a business to then get that data exhaust because you can't just kind of turn on that data exhaust. Sure, you need to build it builds over
0: time. Yeah. To get
2: that, yeah. And so that's something that we realize is just a huge advantage and something that we're going to be continuing to double down on.
0: Yeah. So clearly a big part of the Q4 story is this platform approach, which is, you know, historically there's a lot that goes into IR. Like if you guys are the one-stop shop for IR, call it. And I understand there's some other sides of the business, but you know, that's the main business. Um, You know, historically IR might've been kind of a piecemeal offering, right? You have, you know, a website that you have to manage, you have press releases you have to put out, securities filings you have to make, earnings calls you have to run, analyst days you have to run, maybe you log investor interactions, Uh, In Salesforce, maybe you log them in Excel, who who knows how you're keeping track on the CRM side. Um, This is probably an obvious, you know, question from your perspective, but like, you know, when you're really talking to a customer and you're saying, hey, look, our big value proposition to you is this unified platform approach, you know, no more piecemeal solutions, you use Q4, like, why is a platform approach to IR better than kind of the piecemeal solutions that are out there?
2: So there's a couple of aspects to that. So the, the first one is, as you mentioned, um, the role of IR has uh, a lot of these different functions, whether they're, it's like communications related or analytics or engagement, or even when talking about kind of roadshows lo- like logistics, but then you also have that overlaid with, uh, with legal and compliance. And the fact that you take all that and then you put it into the earnings cycle. And you can think of the 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 job of investor relations is like a three month long job that repeats four times a year. Yeah. And when it repeats, and when you get into earnings, it's an incredibly intense and stressful period because all eyes are on that function at that time, and you have complete access uh, and partnership with the C suite of of the company.
0: Yeah. So you really can't mess the, up.
2: The margin for error very yeah. very very, very thin and there, it's it's material. So, you know, if you draft a script and say something wrong or, or disclose something incorrect or uh, some problem happens, you know, it can have an impact on the business. It can have an impact on the cost of capital for that that business. And you're talking about in many cases, you know, companies that are kind of north of a billion uh, in, in market cap. So these swings have like big material impacts to the business. So a huge amount of stress um, in the role. So one of the first things that we started to do when we thought about, okay, building out this, this stack is that it's not just about a technology platform. Now I'll get to the technology and the benefits of that from a data perspective. But the first thing is if you said the value proposition is, hey, Spencer, let's not even talk about technology. Let's just say that you only need to deal with me. And I'm gonna handle absolutely everything that you need to run this function. You, you have a problem, you come to me. You need something new, you come to me. So the first thing that we aggregated was the point of contact to say, I'll take your stress.
0: Yeah, you and don't need vendors anymore. You, need you, don't, need,
2: you don't need That's multiple better. vendors. You don't yeah. need vendors saying like, the problem was this one or this one, like what's happening, who am I supposed to contact? We aggregated the point of contact first. Then we also aggregated all the billing to say, the other thing you don't need to do is worry about kind of dealing with multiple vendors. You can just deal with one source that consolidates everything that makes it really easy for you from a budgeting standpoint and an issue resolution standpoint. Then you get into the actual kind of the workflow of it that when you're, when you're handling earnings and you're coming into earnings, and you have you have to manage like, what are you putting up on your website? What's the filing that you're doing? What's the press release that you're doing? What do you put on your website? Are you organizing the call, the script, et cetera? Being able to do that with one company in one source through one platform, it really eliminates stress. We talk about kind of frictionless earnings or stress-free yeah. earnings. And that's a huge value proposition. Now, what we've done beyond that is then to say, let's connect these, these products from a data and analytics perspective. So now let's take the behavior on one side and combine that with the action of investors in the market to help these uh, IROs and the IR function be more efficient at making recommendations. A great um, example of that is one There's on the upside, which is like, here's a great investor, you should engage with them and uh, let's set up a meeting. The CEO is gonna meet with them. Everyone loves it. The investor takes a big position. It's a, it's a, it's a sunny day, but the, the downside of that is let's say an investor comes in, wants a meeting, you don't vet them, you don't understand who they are. You don't understand what else they're doing or their behavior, but you tee up a meeting with the CEO for an hour with this investor and it goes bad or it goes, it becomes clear this investor is not interested in investing in this company. They're doing research or they're a short, or they're an activist the CEO is not happy at the end of that meeting. Like you just wasted my time uh, and you put me in in a difficult position. That's like a nightmare scenario for our clients. So we help them both on the kind of the upside and also mitigating risk and making sure that they're delivering value. And in order to do that without it being all as one is it just puts all that on the client. And so what we've seen is, and this started from when we first started to expand our product line, which was back in like, 2000, 2000, uh, really we started doing in 2015 is when we started, we, which was our first acquisition we got into shareholder analytics. We were in events a little bit before then, but as we've expanded our, the, the range of products that are on the platform and the value that we can provide, we simply acquire more clients, um, and their spend with us is higher. So the more products that we offer, the more we unify them, the more we unify their data, the, uh, customers buy more and churn less, like re- they renew at higher rates. So it really has worked the more value that we provide to them, which is better for them. It's better for us as a business. And so we're just you know, continuing to very much focus on that approach.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, you phrased it to me before, is it's kind of a kind of cover your ass type sell in a way, which is we're best in breed. Why try and do all these 10 things individually when, you know, you can rely on one platform to do them well. And, you know, apparently that sales pitch resonates well.
2: It does. Yeah. I mean, we've had customers that have, um, you know, they've been with us and and we don't we don't shy away from this. I mean, we're not the cheapest solution in the market uh, and we we don't intend to be the cheapest. We want to be able to deliver the best service and charge the appropriate amount for it. So one of our kind of um, number one reasons for for churn uh, would be that people don't want to pay the price anymore. They, they're they looking for a cheaper solution. But in many many instances, those people leave and try to cobble something together that is less expensive. But when they do that, they invite pain. They invite yeah. pain, risk, and stress. And then they realize the the amount that's saved is not worth it. Um, and so in many cases, they then come back, which is uh, which is always a very sweet uh, a sweet thing to see when it when that occurs.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so maybe next, let's chat about Q4's kind of competitor set. Um, Obviously, you've got some kind of piecemeal solutions that are out there where people kind of cobble together um, kind of their Q4 uh, solutions. You know, flip side is, I know you also have some other larger competitors out there who do offer kind of package solutions, um, some of them being public companies, some of them being private companies. Um, I'll start kind of open-ended, which is like, how would you quantify the competitive dynamics today Uh, from your growth standpoint? does Does most of your growth come from someone going from kind of a piecemeal solution to a platform and you picking that up? Or does most of your growth come from kind of stealing a customer from one platform over to yours? How would you break it out?
2: So the the unique thing about us in, in our space is that we are the only company that um, that has the platform approach that brings these products together in the way that, that we do. Who we compete with are um, kind of the the point solutions that are a part of what uh, what we bring together. So we have competitors on, in terms of like from the CRM perspective, competitors in analytics, in web and uh, in, in events. And so the 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 real benefit for us is when when we're out in market, um, we have that unique differentiator from a platform perspective. And that, oh, we, also, we have the ability to compete and say, you know, you can consolidate these two things and you're going to get the efficiencies of bringing them together plus the cost efficiencies, et cetera. And so that that is something we do across the board. Um, the, the vast majority of our sales comes from our ability to displace an existing solution that's deployed inside of a company. So that would be 75, 80% of our kind of new logo wins comes from uh, yeah. these placement scenarios. That depends on the market in terms of like, is it someone that's using highly sophisticated stuff that's coming from like a stock exchange, like from NASDAQ, who's one of our competitors or using Bloomberg to try to, to do some of this. Bloomberg doesn't have really extensive uh, functionality from this perspective, but in some cases, um, or if it's more of a, like a localized competitor in a particular country that has one one piece. Um, but we the majority comes from uh, this displacement. The, the other piece, the kind of the green field for us is typically IPOs. So IPOs in in the markets that we operate in, uh, whether that's you know North America, we're doing some more work in South America um, and then in Europe. So that's the and those are the ones where it's you know you're selling into kind of a scenario where it's quite uh, it's greenfield, so they have they don't have anything. The other side of the business when it's displacement is depending upon the size of the company, if they're quite small, they might have, you know, Excel and they're trying to use Salesforce and they're using Excel and everything's kind of like very manual and they've cobbled together a website. As you go up market into the larger companies, then they would have more kind of formalized built out systems. Yeah. Um, But in each case, it's really kind of platform versus a a collection of solutions. That's been the key to us winning over the, the last I mean, really over the last probably like five years or so. Then we've gotten, we've integrated more and more technology-wise and data-wise and analytics as we've kind of doubled down on the platform. But this has been our kind of positioning for the last, yeah, probably five years.
0: Okay. And who would you, um, I guess to be more specific, that who, who would you kind of rank as most formidable on the competitive standpoint? I know you've got kind of NASDAQ, you've got IHS, which is now part of s You've got Notified from Intrado. You've got maybe some point solutions that are kind of like, maybe Zoom's an up-and-coming competitor, maybe on Twenty Four is on the events, like, who would you really pinpoint as being like, yeah, these guys are good, you know, we, we see them in a lot of deals, you know, we compete against those,
2: them. Now. Those top three that you mentioned are the okay. most profitable, for sure, um, because they also, they have resources, they have other ways that they can bundle solutions together, they have kind of, um, you know, if you look at, at NASDAQ certainly being a stock exchange themselves, they've got a lot of okay. different kind of Tools that they can use to be able to drive deals. So those are, those would be the kind of the three main ones. And then outside of that, you do see um, more localized competitors, but the interesting thing is, and you mentioned um, uh, like zoom and on 24 and those types of companies, we've found an ability to be really, really very competitive against them. Well, we actually, we do integrate zoom into parts of our solution. So if we do, uh, if you saw our video earnings call um, we, Zoom as the way to kind of capture video before we feed it into our platform. We also use Zoom or Teams on our investor conference um, platform to facilitate one-on-ones. So we kind of Zoom is more of a more of a partner and in an integration than it is a competitor. Um, but looking at it from a competitor like Zoom or On24, the, the unique difference that we have when we go out and sell, if we're looking for virtual events and we're selling, we're not out there, we don't try to sell for every single use case. So if you're looking to do a sales conference or a town hall or um, or a product launch or something like that, we're not the right company for you because what we have invested in is integrating the events part of the platform um into very specific capital markets use cases. Sure. So there's a bunch of stuff that we've built that makes it really, really makes it an amazing product and, and highly differentiated from on 24 in that segment. But if you want to do it for like the marketing product launch, if a new
0: one virtual event, you know, Q4 is not for you. Yeah.
2: And and it's just the, the feature set that on 24 or or Zoom has to run those types of events. Um, is something that doesn't exist in our system. So we don't really come up against those kind of like generic solutions very often. Similar on CRM, like we don't compete against Salesforce. Salesforce is not uh, does not have kind of a, um, a footprint in this market because it's so specialized in terms of what the use cases are that using a more generic uh, CRM to try to solve for that just requires you to do so much customization um which is the same thing on web as well like you know an interesting thing on web uh squarespace is, is a client wix yeah. is a client these are and then all the social, social media companies are our clients that these are companies that have incredible capability from a web perspective yet still run
0: on q4 yeah what's that yeah yeah they still run on q4 yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah 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 but but they still run on q4 because it's so specialized um is uh makes it very unique in terms of our ability to I imagine that's a good sales pitch
0: if someone ever said, why don't I build my own website? You could say, well, you'd probably use Square, um, or sorry, Squarespace or Wix. And those customers use Q4. So you can think about the yeah, value proposition there. That,
2: that is, uh, we have had those saying, well, why don't I just use Wix? And it's like, we well, should ask them why they use us.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it seems like you guys balance this, uh, kind of have this unique competitor partnership dynamic where like you talked about NASDAQ being a competitor um, on IR side, obviously, they can bundle that offering with their whole suite of kind of financial technologies they sell. Um, flip side of that is I know you guys have a partnership with New York Stock Exchange, which kind of is kind of warm leads for you guys coming in the door for new IPOs. Like, it seems like across the board, you guys have this balance. And even for, you know, S&P, like, I know you guys picked up kind of their web hosting business a couple of years ago, then they acquired IHS Market. So now they're kind of own now, a competitor of you guys. Um Like, what's that competitor partnership dynamic like? And I guess big picture, long term, like, is is Q4 a business that, you know, you think long term is a standalone business? Or do you think long term, this is, it has just a really good fit within a good, um, you know, strategic acquire?
2: So the the dynamic of kind of like what I describe as like frenemies. Yeah. Uh, or partners, partners and competitors at the same time, I'm not sure what the combined word is of uh, partners and competitors. Um, we could put partners. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's something that we have to, to navigate because you have, you know, big, um, large firms that that cover huge amounts of, of the market. So you look at like, you know, someone like NASDAQ, uh, they have all the, the fintech business, but then also listings. So, yeah, you know, uh tons of our clients are listed on nasdaq and so and we integrate with nasdaq in a bunch of different ways to facilitate like their roles of public company listing on nasdaq um and so the i think the thing that we always have to do is to to try to navigate those situations as much as uh, as effectively as we can and there are situations where you have consolidation so you've got you know like s and ihs which is i think a fantastic deal it makes a ton of strategic sense it's been great for shareholders um, and so by doing that, then you're looking at, okay, how do we operate within that? And that that's really our approach is to be, you know, very transparent and collaborative with our partners and recognize that there's going to be these blurry lines in terms of how we operate and to make sure that we keep our, uh, our clients first, which is what's the best thing for our customers? How do we make sure that we're continuing to deliver value for them? And then we'll figure out how we need to navigate these various different partnerships, um, both from a, from a sales perspective, but also from like a data perspective um, to be able to continue to deliver great products to, to our clients. Um, and that comes down to kind of like deal by deal, partner by partner to figure out how to navigate. But I think we've done a really good job of the ecosystem that we're, that we're part of, the partners that we have, um, both from our data integrations and uh, kind of platform integrations, but also from just from sales channels um, and then to answer your question of, about the, the Q4 as a business, uh, is it a great business or is it, does it fit really well in something larger? You know, what I can say is that our vision is to continue building this business is to build this business and to be the platform that we can acquire onto that, uh, onto this business. And that is, that's the vision in terms of what it is that, that we're building, that's something where we see the most opportunity. That's what we've invested in technology wise is to be able to do that. Um, having said that, you know, is there a, a point in the future where Q4 at, makes sense as part of a larger entity? You know we're, we're not going to kind of, um, you know close that door and say absolutely never. We would never do some sort of merger with uh, merging into a, another entity. If we, if we felt that that was in the interest of our clients and in service of our vision, and the pricing was right, and it was a good deal for shareholders, um, we're not going to be kind of like blinders on and absolutely not do that. Um, but that's not what we're setting out to do. So yeah. you know, if it comes yeah. as part of our execution on our strategy, then we'll evaluate it. Um, but you know, uh, I wake up every day um, talking about how to, de- how to execute and deliver on the vision and the first part of that. Um, and then we'll be opportunistic if there's if there's a great deal to come in the future.
0: Yeah, you guys have a job to do, but if someone comes to you one day and says, "Look, you guys have half the S and P five hundred, you know, half the Fortune two thousand as clients, and we think there's some cross sell synergies here, you know, let's have a conversation."
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know, in in the world in the world of what's possible, there's a bunch of things that could make a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah, um, but but again, you know, we uh, but we focus on kind of nose to the grindstone and building a great business. Sure,
0: sure, that's what I think I do. Um. More on the kind of the kind of revenue retention dynamics of the business, which is, you know, once you've acquired a customer, um, how sticky would you describe your kind of revenue, um, you know, your product and revenue base? Uh, and I know you, you guys disclose some metrics around kind of what controllable churn looks like. And you've alluded to some net revenue retention numbers. And you guys have this unique dynamic where sometimes, I don't know, like if you're an SMB software company, sometimes your SMB customers got a business. In this case, some of your customers might get acquired. Uh, and therefore, that's kind of one of those customer who needs an IR suite. Um, I guess, you know, what would you say about kind of some of those metrics?
2: So um, the way that we classify things are, and from a, a churn perspective first, is controllable and uncontrollable. Um, controllable would be that they're leaving us, as I mentioned, they might leave us for price or some other reason. Um, and then uncontrollable would be uh, situations that are, they get delisted or they get acquired or yeah. probably they go bankrupt, which is usually... Uh, included in a delisting or something ahead of them going bankrupt. Sure. And so when we look at those two buckets, um, what we kind of forecast the business is a kind of a sub 10% controllable and uncontrollable together. So nine, or the way the flip of that is thinking like a 90% plus uh, renewal. Um, and is that on uh, a logo
0: basis or on a revenue basis?
2: On a logo basis. On a logo basis. Um, which I'll, I'll talk about revenue in a, in a second. Um, and but when we look at it from a controllable perspective, we're incredibly pleased that um, that we're tracking at about a four percent churn. Uh, last quarter was four percent, which is kind of record levels of retention on the controllable side. Um, and I think that speaks to the platform strategy. Again, like as we execute the platform and unify everything and tie it all together, we're just providing that much more value to customers um, that keeps them on the platform longer. The uncontrollable, we do um you have to move with kind of the 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 phase of the the market. So if we do see scenarios like in the second quarter, starting in the first quarter, the second quarter probably was even higher, was uh, M&A. So if there's okay. a lot of MA in the market, you see these situations like what's happened uh in Q2, where you have, you know, the acquirers out there are cash rich and there's a lot of good deals out there, uh, then you see kind of an uptick in MA. So um but that's something that that ebbs and flows um you know what we focus on really is the controllable and keeping our cust- delighting our customers and being able to kind of continually narrow that uh, that renewal but the fact that we've got kind of you know 96% um, controllable renewal in the business is something that we're uh, that we're really pleased with um on the, the NRR, so we did share kind of NRR when we when we went public. We haven't reported that on a quarterly basis, like what NRR is. So I won't share kind of, I won't do that now, cause that'll be yeah. uh, good for us to, to handle on the disclosure side. But what I can share is that it is um, it is positive. So it is north of a hundred. You know, it is something that we see that net revenue retention is something that we really focus on. Um, and it's a part of, the way we can see that, one of the numbers we do share is the increasing percentage of customers that are running two or more products uh, into the ARR? Sure. So that, was, um, uh, like sixty-three when we first started reporting, then sixty-four, now sixty-six. Um, so that number, I know that, you know that's not a big change in the percentage basis, but when you apply that across the yeah, entire material, yeah, um, it it is really moving the needle. Um, and the uh and the amount of business that we're in terms of like how much of our um. Businesses coming from selling into the base, which is something that we're uh, we're really pleased with. So, I think the the those two aspects of the that kind of percentage of ARR uh, and the uh, the renewal rate, those are two things that can give you a sense in terms of what uh, what NRR looks like. Okay. And we're not against sharing NRR. There's some stuff that we're doing internally in terms of how we would um, communicate NRR. There's some nuances in our business where we deliver things like an investor day. That um, is an event that happens once a year, so it's yeah. not it's kind of one-time but, revenue. Yeah, but it but it reoccurs every year. Every year, yeah. So, so we're we're working on that. Um, so moving forward, perhaps into twenty-three, we are um, working on sharing some new metrics to de- to really illustrate the the retention and the value of clients to include the one-time. Um, but we just need to do a little bit of work before we start to share that.
0: Okay, so I guess building on that. Um, how would you describe kind of the growth formula of the business going forward? Which is, you know, obviously if you broke the growth out in the business between kind of new customer acquisition and existing customers, and on the existing customer side, you can obviously break that out between um, pricing, upsell, churn, just, you know, what have what kind of, what have you guided investors to expect from the business from a growth standpoint? Um, and how do you break that out between kind of those different levers, whether that's new customers, existing customers, pricing, et cetera?
2: So um, kind of coming back to when I did my my kind of opening comments, uh, I mentioned this aspect. When we look at our current business of the 2,700 customers with like a 20,000 ARPA, the the two components there, and they're equally weighted, which is to uh, acquire more clients and have them use more. With... And that kind of gets us to the point of saying okay, getting to five thousand clients and having them uh, spending fifty thousand a year with us versus twenty seven
0: hundred a day and twenty k a year, roughly.
2: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's where that's where it takes the business from kind of where we are today, call well, it just under sixty to being like a two hundred fifty million dollar business. So those two aspects of of acquire clients and drive and, and drive increased adoption. Those are equally important. We have equal weighting against those uh, against those initiatives. And they're both uh, they're both uh, equally as important. The nuance in our business is that during certain in challenging market conditions, like if you look at the um, over the kind of first half of this year, the ability to acquire new logos um, it becomes more challenging because in a kind of market where valuations are sliding significantly, thank goodness it's leveled out and we're starting to see the uh, the kind of the winter, the winter of financings and the IPOs is starting to thaw, which is great to see. Um, During that period, it becomes harder to acquire a new client. So what we do is then pull the lever to say, okay, let's drive as much as we can with our existing base. But that will that's going to change as the market does uh warm up a little bit we start to see we're starting to see um smaller ipos happen these are more kind of like um uh like ipos in kind of the tens of millions are starting to happen again so we see kind of lower end oh, of the market starting to open up um you know we all know what what needs to happen there's a couple more rate increases to come there's before we get to the new normal but the the key thing for us is like in a normal functioning market which, you know, I think if you look at, say, like, the last six months, how many of those periods have we had in the last, you know, 15 years? There's kind of this one, and then there was, like, 2008. So there's, there's these brief periods where the market um, slides and changes dramatically. The rest, of the, the rest of the market, if you zoom out, when it's functioning normally, so this is, you know, the market from, like, 2010 to 2019, where there is steady progress being made, um, the IPO market is healthy but not insane. It's there yeah. isn't a huge amount of froth that's mm-hmm. happening. In those markets, we have the ability to pull both those levers in terms of driving new client acquisitions and uh, and uh, uh, expansion. Um, and then the, the other component of that is um, the new initiatives we're making into selling into the into the sell side. We see that being a business that is, is going to continue yeah. to grow still in nascent uh, nascent stage, but we feel really confident in terms of our ability to grow that business over time. And then all this overlaid with with acquisitions that the acquisitions that we see we're very focused on accretive uh, uh, acquisitions that are going to help accelerate our uh, our mandate. Now the acquisitions, certainly the market in some respects have gotten cheaper. Um, but in other respects when you know you talked about kind of where we're trading and our multiple, when you have that dynamic, it just, the bar is higher in terms of deals that make sense. You know, we're not just gonna be kind of like, let's just, uh, it doesn't matter. Let's just do deals for the sake of deals. You know, we are being much more diligent in terms of like, what fits, what makes sense. And let's be really specific in terms of our capital allocation, um, because it's uh, uh, because of kind of where we are uh, in the, in the cycle right now, it's really important for us to think that way. Sure.
0: So I think it's pretty clear kind of how one would get potentially from, you know, 2,700 customers to 5,000 customers, albeit, you know, you can look at the market opportunity, how many publicly traded stocks are out, that are out there north of X million dollars in market cap. Um, and then obviously look at the competitive dynamic. On the upsell side, what is the biggest upsell opportunity all along, you know, what is the biggest lever you pull to get, you know, call it ARPU from 20K a year to 50K? Um, sure. Like what's that What's the path to get there? what is, is that realistic? you could actually get the whole revenue base you know the whole customer base up there?
2: Yeah, yeah. so um, one thing I should mention is the profile now as I mentioned was um, kind of like the billion market cap and up. okay One of the things that we're doing is certainly expanding that. So we've got products in market now which are intended for smaller market cap companies um, and moving expanding our product range to make sure that we're also capturing kind of the micro the micro and nano cap segments. The product mix is a bit different, um, but equally as important for us to expand into that market segment as well. That's critical when we look at kind of the the 40,000 companies um, uh, globally, public companies globally, not all of them are north of a billion dollars. So to make sure we're really realizing the TAM, having our product make sense for all market cap sizes is is a strategic priority for us. Um, So then to answer your question about like, how do you move ARPA? Is so moving Arpa takes time when you have a large client base. First and foremost, like you know, moving that 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 meter uh, in any way is challenging because it's just you've got a you got a big denominator that you got to work with, like the 2,700 or more. The way that we've been doing it and what we how we've been seeing in work is the platform approach is is a key driver for driving product adoption, and I'll, I'll explain why. If you have a customer that's running um, a website with us? Well, if they run their events with us, then they get, as we mentioned, kind of the, the efficiency of one source, um, one contact point, et cetera. But in doing that, that also gives them the ability that now that you're running two products with us, you can now buy this analytics package that's going to give you insights in terms of how to um, how to understand all the behavior of these investors. The next piece is that if you buy the CRM, you can now extract the data from analytics and put it into targeting campaigns. And in doing that, then if you buy the next level of analytics, you can now understand the really the behavior of these investors in in intra-quarter, like in in between 13F filings. So our entire strategy is based on the, the value that we can deliver is based on customers using more products with us that makes them more efficient, that allows them to do their job better, to uh, drive more upside, but also to mitigate risk. That's the strategy that we have been deploying. uh, And that's been working that if you look at the entry point of customers now, um, maybe like a a year ago, year and a half ago, the entry point was kind of still in the teens, like 15, 16,000 in terms of their first purchase coming in now that number is kind of in between 25 and 30 so we've almost doubled the starting point in terms of where customers enter the other is if you look at the biggest deals that we're doing now are kind of like top 10 deals are all north of 50,000. our top five deals are kind of north of 100. Um, and so and all of that comes because when people see the fact when all of this comes together with one platform it's just it's really resonating with the customer base Now, what we need to do continuously is market really effectively to our existing customers and that's something that we've been doing that was part of what we've done with the IPO proceeds is really build an expansion capability to really market and sell into our customer base and that's something that we're happy to see those metrics moving in the right direction which is kind of number of um, um, two or more products driving what percentage of ARR is a great metric uh, and some of the other things that we focus on. So we're seeing the these numbers move and our expectation is that they're going to continue to do that with the current product suite. But then the final piece of that is that we're not done with the product suite. So yeah. we look at the evolution of our analytics and where that goes in the pricing tiers that's coming from that plus other ancillary products that work on our platform that we intend on releasing over uh, into the future that's gonna be really important. So it's um, all those things um, together is what we have confidence that we're gonna be able to kind of get to that that level of ARPA.
0: Yeah. So I guess this whole conversation would be complete without some comments and questions on the kind of margin and profitability side of the business. And um, you know, it's particularly timely in tech right now, just from both an operator and investor standpoint, which is you have a whole host of companies who investors told to grow as fast as humanly possible and they were rewarded for, they were rewarded for doing so. Uh, for the last five plus years, which is the faster you grew, the higher multiple you got, particularly in enterprise software, you know, the higher sales multiple you got. Um, that dynamic's obviously shifting a little bit. Uh, rates are rising. Capital is more expensive. Investors are saying, hey, you might not have unlimited capital here into the future. We need to see the actual economics of the business. We need to see you being profitable. So um, you know, enterprise software is obviously a great example of this because there's a little bit of a belief among investors that these businesses can be profitable whenever they want to. And that's a little bit of an exaggeration because it requires work, obviously, but the high retention dynamics of the business means if you tweak the cost structure a little bit and you retain that revenue, you can get there. Um, I'm curious just from your perspective and Q4's perspective, um, how do you think about the margin potential of your business over time? You guys are taking some initiatives today. I know you guys have you know, slowed spending. You guys have announced a small reduction in the workforce. Um, but when you look at the revenue potential of the business, how do you think about what, or sorry, the margin potential business, how do you think about what that can be? What data points do you point to that give you confidence that you're going to get there over time?
2: So a couple of things on that, which is maybe the first thing I'll comment on is, I think the the no, the idea that um, enterprise software companies, SaaS companies um, can be profitable whenever they want. Um, and that's something when we look at Q4, we absolutely are in that same dynamic as well, that um, you look at it and say, there are part, there's aspects of the business that are highly profitable. If We look at like contribution margin of different aspects of our business, highly profitable today. The, the challenge for companies, I believe, is that uh, you make long-term investments. So no. building software doesn't happen overnight. If you say, we're gonna build a platform that unifies all of our products, has one unified data layer so we can generate these analytics. That's an 18 month long investment um, that takes, you know, large number of teams um, and a long-term investment cycle to be able to deliver on that. So I think the, the challenge that many companies face is that, yes, if you, if you said, we don't care about the future, all we care about is making maximum profit on the current business today. You can take an ax to that business and say, here it is bang profitable yeah the problem is you've just cut the legs out of the future you've just said there is the, all these leading all these investments we've made to create the business that we're going to create into the future that's not going to happen yeah, no. that
0: ARPA up uplift gets cut new customer acquisition gets cut yeah.
2: everything cuts you basically you stand still with that business and it's high and it's highly profitable with no growth
0: yeah
2: um so that doesn't solve anything with with investors either because no investor wants a highly profitable company that isn't growing. Um, You know, growth is key, whether you're growing top line or profit, uh, either one is absolutely key to attracting uh, and maintaining investors. So I think that's the, when I looked at for ourselves, when we came out, when we went public and raised the money, um, we had an investment plan as a part of that, which is like doing this is in service of executing this strategy for us. It was some big platform investments, scaling up R&D, scaling up our sales and marketing teams, building our expansion teams all of these in service of executing the strategy that we've talked about today. So when, when looking at that, and then the market changes to devalue the growth companies and kind of the you know risk goes off, all of the money then goes to, to profitable companies. The decision that, that we need to make from a strategic perspective is that, okay, are we gonna continue knowing that this has happened and kind of even Q1, are we gonna continue and finish these investments before we stop them? And the decision that we we made was absolutely yes. That it's kind of crazy if you think about spending. Let's say it's going to cost you ten dollars to build this piece of software that's going that's key to the future, and you've already spent eight.
0: Yeah. Why stop? If
2: you if you stop, you've literally just burned the eight. The eight has no value. It just goes into the bin, and it's garbage. Um. Or do you say no? Hold steady. Let's finish this investment, and once we're there, then we'll then we'll make the adjustment. And that's that's what we did in the business is making sure that these things see their way through before we make uh, make the change um, was important for us. And we think that it is in service of the 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 medium to long-term strategy of the business and essential for us to be able to to continue to grow into the future. Um, and the challenge, you know when when you look at the uh, the the valuation changes that that happen that drive the you know push to profitability, is that um, it's really about cost of capital. Like for us, you know, like looking at the ability to kind of execute on acquisitions and raise more money is, uh, is something that you wanna make sure that the company's valued appropriately as you really lean into that. And I think what what, uh, what I hope investors have seen from our actions following the last earnings call and what what they're gonna see as we continue to execute this strategy is that, you know, there, we knew it was very intentional in terms of where, when we were done that investment cycle. Um, and so the risk of, well, if we continue to kind of um, burn capital at the rate that we did in the second quarter, well, then we might need to raise in like five or six quarters. Um, that's something that I think is going to um, over the, the subsequent quarters is going to be very clear that that's not happening um, and that we're able to really uh, execute on this plan. So in terms of like the leading indicators for us in terms of like, are we executing here? There, there's two components. One is continuing to deliver the gross margin expansion which that is working really well. The biggest driver of that is the our vertical integration of our events business. Um, and that's now by year end, we'll have 95% of our clients running on that platform. That's the biggest uh, change in our gross margin profile. So that's the first is kind of making sure we deliver on the gross margin expansion. And there's multiple pillars in that, but I just call it the events one because it's it's the biggest. Um, so I think that's one the key thing to, to uh, uh, look at. And then the other is the kind of the narrowing down of OPEX. So when we look at OPEX, it's making sure that we are, we went through the restructuring. We also have um, initiatives in place now to, to, to utilize geo uh, geo hiring strategies in different districts around the world where we have kind of like advantages from a cost perspective. And so what we really want investors to be able to look at is you know track that gross margin and then also from an opex perspective i think you're going to see a reshaping of the business again the restructuring is the beginning of that but there's more that we're going to be doing uh, on that front to really deliver the appropriate amount of gross profit to to run the business which is you know gets us to break even and then continue growing the business on that same cost basis uh, to really drive the uh the, the uh EBITDA margin through into the, like the la- latter part of next year and into 24. Okay.
0: Yeah, you bring up a good point, which is, and you know, I feel like I hear some execs say this, and I feel like I hear some investors miss it, which is a lot of the investments you make, particularly at enterprise testcomes, are long-term in nature. Whether it's a sales rep, right, or new software development, it's investments you make today are the ones that are going to generate growth, you know, a year or two from now. Um, so you know, maybe another way to phrase this would be let's say you guys committed, and I know you guys have committed to being EBITDA on free cash flow positive, I think back half of 23. Um okay let's say you guys took that a step further. Let's say you guys said by the end of 24, you wanted to get to call it 20% adjusted even on margins as a business. Let's just take that as a hypothetical. Um, If you wanted to get there, obviously it would require, I mean, you can get there, obviously revenue needs to grow and OPEX needs to stay flat, grow slower or drop, Um, depending on what that revenue growth rate is. Let's say you want to get to 20% margins in two years. For Q4's business, the way you understand it, the way you run it, what could growth look like if you really made a conscious effort to say, we want to get to 20% margins in two, three years, like we want to show the embedded profitability of this business. Is this still a business that can grow its top line? Uh, is it stagnant? You know, uh, how would you describe kind of what the growth could look like, you know, once you've actually reached the material margins?
2: Yeah, I think uh, and I think that is kind of like when we think of like terminal EBITDA margins, it's in that kind of like 20 to 25 percent range is is what we feel confident in terms of what the what the business shape will look like. The my answer to your question is a little bit uh, uh, not as specific as as what what you're yeah. hoping for. But what I'll say is like in in the current market that we're operating in, where financings are basically muted there is no new issuers coming out it's challenging from a from company's perspective as to um investing in marketing so if you have a new company and they're like financings are great in the capital markets because it drives companies to not just look for secondary investors but you know they're out there raising money that juices the whole machine yeah. um that juices everything it juices Yeah. Especially, yeah. investment banking everything Um, and, uh, and then also new issues as well. So like the IPO market, um, those two things is, you know, we think that historically that would be contributed to probably maybe like a third of our kind of like our new logo acquisitions come from kind of the 25 to 30% kind of come from IPOs or kind of connected to financings, I would say. So if that doesn't exist, uh, over the next couple of years, then I think our expectations are kind of like mid teens growth is is something which is kind of a reasonable expectation for us to grow. As that market comes back, we're gonna benefit significantly from that. And I wanna preface that with, we're not talking about the market in 21, which is like unhinged from reality, incredibly frothy. We don't need that. Now that's great tailwind to have. I mean, if it does come back, we're not gonna complain about that. But to build a great steady growth business um, that is kind of similar to the growth trajectory that we had before, Um, relies on a healthy capital markets to function to be there. So the reason why I said I won't give you the exact exact answer is because I would put that question back saying, if you can tell me when that's going to happen, then I'll tell you when we're going to be able to get back to kind of that growth profile. But, you know, and I think it's something that this in no way means that we're like sitting on our hands and saying, well, we'll just wait for that market to come back. Um, so we're, you know, I wake up every day, um, looking to blow the numbers that I just mentioned to you, uh, out of the water. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we've got a lot of exciting things going on that, uh, that have the potential to do that, but, you know, we'll wait to see how, uh, what the print looks like.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, look, Q4 and a whole lot, whole host of other, you know, called smaller cap software companies are in the same bucket, which is, you know, obviously the best businesses out there can be highly profitable and grow at scale, right? That, that's just the. The definition of what investors look for: it need to be profitable, and you need to be putting up good growth numbers. In theory, that you know, a lot of these enterprise software companies should be able to make that pivot, right? Which is, you know, because of the high revenue retention dynamics of the business, a lot of which comes from existing customers as opposed to new customers. If you pull back on new customer acquisition spend, you know, you just cut some projects that maybe have low RRIs associated with them. You should be able to continue to grow your revenue base from your existing customers while still squeezing out additional margin in the business. Um, and you know some customers will be able to do it others won't um and i guess we're gonna see that play out um maybe yeah, the last
2: time it's like that when we look at the getting to those kind of profit margins we we are not basing that on um on having to get back to kind of historical growth rates like our assumptions now in running the business is i don't believe this is going to happen but the way we're we're forecasting the business and budgeting it is that this market is will never change. Like this yeah. is the new goal. This is the new demand cycle. So let's make sure we're running a great business in this environment that is both delivering that growth trajectory and the margins that we're talking about. And then if and when the tailwind comes back, um, we're just going to be positioned incredibly well to benefit from it.
0: Okay. So in short, you believe that mid-teens growth profile can get you to that 20 to 25% margin profile over yeah. time. And that's yeah that's what you plan on um look the last line a question here um is uh more on, kind of on the valuation side uh and you know I think once again topical for a whole list of reasons but um you know q4 unlike or q4 similar to a lot of other software companies who went public in 20, 2020 2021 uh went public at a very high valuation they've seen that correct very swiftly probably more swiftly than they expected more swiftly than investors expected um you know in short today uh q4 trades roughly at one and a half times enterprise value to 2022 sales based on consensus estimates. Um, There's a host of reasons why you guys may or may not be overvalued or undervalued. Uh, You know, you're kind of a small cap stock just based on the size of the business and the valuation, there's limited liquidity, trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange, you know, some US investors and other investors may not like that. Um, I'm curious, and you've also been buying some stock in the open market, so I I suspect you believe your shares are undervalued today. But just when you see the valuation that you trade at, which is one and a half times sales today, which is you've talked about as implications from an M&A standpoint, um, does that strike you for your business and kind of the qualities you think your business has as fairly valued, undervalued, overvalued, and most importantly, why? Like what do you point to to say that's undervalued or overvalued?
2: So I certainly think it's undervalued. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I think that the, when I think about kind of how undervalued it is, what I tend to look at, well, there's, there's two things. One is in this current market condition, as we execute on the plan that we've put forward and as we deliver on that, believe that that will bring uh, more attention and buyers into, into the stock. um, And hence that will, that will affect the multiple. I think we're, we we do think that executing on this plan of now through to mid, mid next year um, is going to be accretive. The, When I think about kind of how undervalued we are, I think some of the dynamics there of being small cap, being listed on Toronto and not having full access to U.S. investors is is certainly some of the factor. Because when I look at kind of comparables and peers, I'm not talking about highly profitable big enterprise companies and say, oh, they they have an 8x on EV to sales or 12x. That's what we should be like. I'm not uh, disconnected from reality, but looking at other similar size companies that are traded in the U.S., that have similar profiles and their their EV to sales is is more of a uh, like a four to five X. So I think the where we where we're trading the liquidity, um, those are aspects that are also impacting the business. And our intention is to is to list in uh, in an, on another exchange, like, you know, maintain our TSX listing, but list in the US at some point. So we do think that that will sort itself out. but. Having said that, you know, I think the biggest driver is us executing on the plan uh, in in front of us now. And I think as we do that, as we deliver to that profile, um, I mean, I know from a lot of my conversations with with our current shareholders and with uh, potential investors, you know, I do believe that um, that's going to bring folks in as they see us uh, change the shape of the business. Um, And so we'll have to see how that plays out. And the reality is, is that, we are really just very focused. I want to be clear that we're not doing this, we're not making these changes to uh, in service purely of let's get a multiple and, and try to get a higher stock price. This is about building a better business for the long term. So when we have these investments done, we're able to deliver, get to profitability sooner, bring profitability sooner by about a year that is going to be very good for our balance sheet. That's very good for the efficiency of the business. And we think that opens up opportunities for us in many different ways, both in terms of like our uh, acquisitions that we mentioned, but other aspects as well, because, you know, again, it comes back to the market. Like what's the market gonna look like next year? Uh, we I don't think it's, it's very challenging to run a business to try to appease the market as the market changes, because just right. like what we talked about with enterprise companies or software companies, the market can change its opinion, like in an instant. Uh, and it's very easy for the market to pivot. Like investors can say, risk on risk off. And that happens like in a week. Yeah. Um, whereas we're running a big ship here. It takes time. It takes time to make strategic changes to the business. And you want to really make sure that you're still making bets for the long term, even with the volatility of the market. So, um, I think as we do that, we're going to be able to deliver great value long-term from where we are now Um, because I do, you know, I certainly do think it's uh, a more reasonable valuation for me personally, I would think would be in kind of like the Forex kind of uh, range, but um, you know, the market, uh, the market's always right. So um, whatever the pieces that we have today, we have to deliver and uh, I feel confident that we're going to be able to deliver and then uh, hopefully good things come of that. Yeah, no, you
0: obviously don't determine the stock price alone, um, but you know, to your point, if you believe this is a twenty-five percent margin business, you trade it one and a half times sales. That would imply you kind of trade it, you know, six times your embedded EBITDA today. It's hard to find too many software companies that trade at six times EBITDA that are already at these type of profit margins today, unless they're truly flat to declining businesses, in, in which case there's there's some examples. Um, but yeah. you know, if, if the business ends up being a grower at these profit margin levels. Um, I very easily see how you can make that argument that one half times sales is too low. Um, uh,
2: that's a great, but, you know,
0: it's got some ifs, um, maybe, uh, last one I'll end with here, which is, um, you've talked to a lot of investors. Um, what are the top investor concerns about your business? Um, and kind of any final messaging you would have to, you know, any prospective investors who listen to this, who, you know, want to learn more about Q4.
2: Don't run out of cash.
0: That That's, that's the commentary you get most direct from that's
2: the most direct and it mean it's it's kind of twofold it would say uh don't don't do need don't knee-jerk react to what's going on in the market like stick to your strategy stick to the business that you're building focus on the long term because these market gyrations are just that Um, but having said that is don't run out of cash don't don't in this environment need to raise Um, so as long as you kind of you know continue building the business and get to profitability and uh and maintain as much cash as you can uh then you're going to be very well set uh into the future
0: okay because you guys are actually in an interesting position you know you went public at the right time from a valuation standpoint so you're able to raise a decent amount of capital um and you guys still have over 40 million us dollars on the balance sheet roughly um yeah. and so it doesn't seem like well at least the plan you've messaged to the street like on the last earnings call doesn't seem like there's any material risk that you run out from an operating plan standpoint. Less operations. No, really
2: the, the only the only way it would be is if it was kind of blind to reality and just let's just drive it off a cliff, which is which is absolutely not going to happen. That's not how we built the business over the first fifteen years. Which yeah, and businesses. I guess also
0: be very thoughtful from an M and A perspective, right?
2: Um, yeah, and and I think it's really like maintaining as much cash as we can on the balance sheet now while we get to profitability, while the market does we get a higher multiple, we things start to come back. It also allows us to deploy that capital um in a, at a future point uh in a much uh in a much better scenario. I think you know deploying all that now has a degree of risk associated sure. a higher degree of risk
0: than it could in the future. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Now having said that, you know, we're still very you know opportunistic that we think that there are uh, good targets out there, and there are good assets, and there are accretive deals that that uh, that would make sense with our thesis right now. So we're not closed up close up shop uh, in any way, but the uh, but the bar uh, is higher in terms of what it what it takes for us to have conviction to do a deal. Sure. Well, Dale, I think we're
0: coming up on about an hour here. Um, I uh, don't want to spend uh, too much of your day here, but I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. Uh, I find the Q4 story uh, very interesting, quite compelling. Uh, and I hope other people listen to this also feel like they've got to learn a little bit, learn a little bit about from your perspective, um, kind of what the big picture vision is. So I uh, appreciate you taking the time to come on, and I wish you the best of luck going forward, building Q four.
2: Wonderful, well, thank you so much, Spencer. This has been a, a great conversation. Uh, I really did enjoy it, and uh, I look forward to uh, to listening and and watching uh, the other uh, the other participants in your future episodes. So thank yeah, you yeah, know.
0: it should be fun. So well, thank you, Dale. Have a great day.
2: Cheers. Bye bye.